This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. <laughs> Today is July the 10th, 2007. And uh, I got the wildest kick out of Gunter Grass and Norman Mailer on C-SPAN this week. What a hoot. I even, I even taped it. Um, oh, dear. I wanted... Hmm. Today, I really wanted to talk about um, uh, Barack Obama's wife, but I'll save that. Check her out. Check her out. But uh, I'll put that aside because that's going to go on for a year, and it's exciting. But um, I want to talk about Gunter Grass and Norman Mailer because there is an article you can get uh, by Gunter Grass in the New Yorker. It's the June issue, June the 4th issue, 2007. So I want to talk about that just in case you can still find that in the news uh, stands. Uh, it's a spin on Gunter Grass's teenage days in the Waffen-SS. Woo-wee! <laughs> 60 years too late. Uh, but Norman Mailer said it's the best thing that he has read in the New Yorker in a long time, I think he said. Uh, it was being a bit, uh, a bit cranky. Actually, uh, Norman Mailer, uh, said that this might be his last public appearance. Uh, talked about it as if it were an historic event. It may just be, um, <laughs> the fellow interviewing him said, well, okay, so let's make it count. Anyway, he said that he, he Norman Mailer, was uh, nearly deaf and that um, he probably wouldn't be able to follow the uh, conversation with Gunter uh, Grass, who had a lovely woman there doing the uh, translating. Actually, Gunter speaks English perfectly well, and uh, actually he's... Uh, He's a funny guy with a sense of humor, but his most recent book is called Peeling the Onion. Norman Mailer's book of the moment is all about Hitler, called Castle in the Forest. So, of course, what is interesting is to watch these two men spin off on each other. Gunter Grass, of course, is um, in the spotlight because he is only recently... Uh, written or fessed up to his time in the Waffen-SS. And uh, people, of course, are questioning his motives. Um, there's a word I can't use, but it, it's the S word only. It's Blitzkrieg only. They use the S word. That's what's taking place in Germany over Gunter Grass's um, very late confession. Uh, anyway... Norman Mailer did not take him to task. He seems to admire him. I would say that they are two sides of a coin. Actually, Norman Mailer, at one point, he got a little cross, and he said that it was like talking to an academician that, that um, Gunter Grass was being a schoolteacher, you know, and uh, he wanted to, to go deeper uh, talking about the Nazis, the Germans, he, Norman Mailer, seemed to feel that these men were given a choice. The choice was either to be civilized men and to go out with a whimper, you know, 
or to be glorious and go out with a bang, something like that, uh, that the uh, uh, Hitler's thing, you know, appealed to their romantic sense. I remember the old Engmar Bergman story. He used to say the same thing. He said that it was basically a romantic movement. Who knows? Who knows? Um, what was most interesting to me was that Mailer did insist on defining terms. He kept saying that, you know, there was all kinds of existentialists, his kind and the kind that Gunther Grass represented, that sort of thing. Uh, he said we had to uh, take a word like existentialism and like the word Christianity. You had to define it. Uh, anyway, I I found what he said kind of moving. He really is trying in his great age of 83, yes, he's really trying to say something. Um, the funniest thing he said was that the Swedes were smart because they didn't give him a Nobel Prize. Uh, after all, you know, the Nobel Prize is a peace prize, um, and uh, they didn't think it was wise to give it to a man who'd stabbed his wife. Yes, that was his second wife, Norman Mailer's second wife. He had six. Like Picasso, I think of Norman Mailer as a man who was uh, driven or tortured or tormented by masculinity, fascinated by violence. Uh, during this conversation with Gunther Grass, he said that when he began to write, uh, violence was the thing. Sex had been just about taken over by Henry Miller and the boys. Uh, I don't think he mentioned D.H. Lawrence. I think of D.H. Lawrence and Henry Miller as the, the ones who pretty much broke the mold uh, for the sexual taboos. D.H. Lawrence being a poet, and uh, Miller was playful, some said pornographic, but uh, Lawrence, I I gave up uh, after he came out with all that nonsense about female orgasms being superfluous, yes. Anyway, Henry Miller says he hated his mother, and D.H. Lawrence obviously loved his, so go figure, go figure what that was all about. I think that... Um, Norman Mailer wrote a book called The Prisoner of Sex that I, I tried to read, and it doesn't seem to me he got to first base with the women. Uh, at the end of the book, it seemed to wind up that, well, he, he kind of figured uh, if it came down to it, he wouldn't do the dishes, that was all. He seemed to think that his work was more important than the work that a woman would do if she were living with him, something like that. Uh, it... it it was confusing. Obviously, um, he hadn't got straight the real issue, which is, of course, that women are uh, whole human beings, just like he is. Uh, Gunter Grass is much funnier on the subject. He says that it was his mother complex that made him successful, that made him an artist, a successful novelist. When the wives or a couple of women sat him down. He said he cooked for them, you know, but they were talking over what was wrong with him and about his mother complex. And he said, there he'd fix them dinner anyway. They wanted him to go to a psychoanalyst, be psychoanalyzed. And he said, no, no. He wanted to keep his mother complex. It was valuable, you know. Uh, made his work saleable. You don't want to give it away to an analyst. 
Anyway, he he seemed to me to be what I would call um, very mellow, considering, especially since he's been in this trouble lately. He's a lot of fun. Uh, Norman Mailer, on the other hand, is a bit grim. Uh, I don't know why I... I got a terrible pang looking at him. He reminds me so much of my father. He has that uh, boxer stance. Uh, Norman Mailer is short, physical size. He says when he was a kid growing up, there were all these bullies, and that's where he got hooked on this violence thing. Uh, I've never interviewed Norman Mailer here and um, on Cover to Cover or at KPFA uh I, I bumped into him one day here in the mailroom, and I opened my mouth to say, Good God, Norman, and then I stopped. Uh, something in my lower chakras stopped me. Uh, I think uh, I think he's authentic, and he did give me that strange feeling. Uh, my father was a violent man, and... Uh, uh, I still have something in the lower chakras that puts me off and makes me think I will wait and see. I will not tackle this one head on. Uh, obviously, I have some primal fears that I, I acknowledge. I would rather not know that I still have them. Anyway, I wanted, later I thought, oh, why didn't I, why didn't I talk to him? He looks like a, sweet old man now and uh, I remember his coming on television years ago and saying that <laughs> the women's movement was out to get him he said how did I know the women's movement was going to come along and wash me out to sea and I thought at the time at least he had the grace to acknowledge their existence <laughs> he was talking about the literary establishment on the East Coast and how they had uh, uh, gone for him. Uh, it's funny, he still seems to see the female as a threat. Um, I don't know what his mother complex is all about, but it isn't fun for him, obviously. Uh, Mailer says that women spoiled him, that is, his mother and uh, the women who uh, loved him when he was young, and he said he was unprepared for the fury uh, of women when he did encounter it. He mentioned a lot of ants, that kind of thing. Obviously, he was a an adored a child, and uh, it's curious. He may be right. As the mother of sons, I always figured the best thing to do was give him a hard time, you know, give him a hard time, and then when they got older... Uh, they would appreciate women who were kind to them, you know. <laughs> they would, they would look for somebody who was nicer than mom. Uh, anyway, I think it worked in my case because both of my sons get along beautifully with women, at least as far as I can tell. We never know. We never really know, do we, what's going on. Uh, I just seem to have lucked out, as a friend of mine said the other day. Accidents happen. <laughs> I was fully prepared for dysfunctional children and didn't happen anyway. I'd like to spend a little time with Gunter Grass's war story today because 
it's such a fabulous piece. Norman Mailer is right. It's a great piece in the New Yorker. And uh, I had just watched the movie The Last Days of Sophie Scholl. There's a documentary and a movie about a young student contemporary with Gunter Grass. And uh, she was... Um, she was, they say, assassinated. I do not know if, if it's an assassination to um, murder a student resistor. But anyway, uh, she was passing out anti-war leaflets in 1943. She and her brother Hans and uh, another young man, I think. Uh, and then three or four more were hung as well. Martyrs to the resistance to Hitler. uh they were called the White Rose Society. I have uh, some of their literature. They do continue. I uh, worked on a play once, The White Rose, yes. Anyway, there is another film in which I saw Hitler's secretary saying that she, now that she was near death, she is now dead, uh, the secretary who was with Adolf Hitler in the bunker, she said that Sophie Scholl, was what she herself should have been had she had courage. She said it was no excuse to be young in those times. Sophie Scholl and her fellow students knew what was happening, just as we all know today. We good Germans, yes. But there are always those who prefer denial. There's an excuse always. Uh, after all, no sense rocking the boat, no sense... Getting into trouble, right? Uh, actually, what Gunter Grass confesses to in this piece is that uh, he was just doing what every other teenage, what many other teenage boys in Germany were doing. And uh, it was, uh, you know, one way to get away from home. Norman Mailer always says that patriotism demands that a man be ready to leave his wife and children at a moment's notice. And Gunter just wanted to get out of the flat where his parents lived. Uh, let's, let's just uh, read a little bit. Uh, there's a wonderful picture here of Gunter uh, Grass in his Waffen-SS uniform. Uh-huh. And then a picture with his very bourgeois sweet family in 1933 when he's a little little guy and his sister oh his little sister looks just like me i was born in 33 it's a little girl with glasses and a round face and pigtails she looks exactly like a picture of me in the 30s anyway gunter grass writes in 1943 when i was a 15 year old schoolboy in danzig I volunteered for active duty. When, why, since I do not know the exact date and cannot recall the by then unstable climate of the war, all I can do for now is string together the circumstances that probably triggered and nourished my decision to enlist. No mitigating epithets allowed. What I did cannot be put down to youthful folly. No pressure from above nor did I feel the need to assuage a sense of guilt at, say, doubting the Fuhrer's infallibility with my zeal to volunteer. <laughs> it happened while I was serving in the Luftwaffe Auxiliary, a force made up of boys too young to be conscripts, 
who were deployed to defend Germany in its air war. The service was not voluntary, but compulsory then for boys of my age. Though we experienced it as a liberation from our school routine and accepted its not very taxing drills. And he goes on for many paragraphs um, saying that basically uh, all this soldiering stuff was more fun, you know, uh, than school. <laughs> he said, uh, said that school wasn't going very well because the teachers were frail and they didn't get to class very much. This does seem, does seem rather ordinary, all these things. Uh, it reminds me of our world today so much. Yes, he says, we had every other weekend off. We could, as they put it, go home to mama. Each time my joy at the thought of the visit was tempered by my pain at the thought of our cramped quarters at home, a two-room flat adjoining the small grocery store that my parents ran, where the only space I could call my own was a low niche under the seal of the right-hand living room window. <laughs> Later on in this essay, Gunter Grass describes a terrible irony uh, while he's running away from the Russians in the war. You're hiding in a bicycle shop, and the commanding officer says, grab a bike and take off. And he has to confess that he uh, couldn't ride a bicycle, that his mother had never had enough money to buy him one in the little store she worked in. There was not enough profit, and there was no bicycle. And so his uh, officer said, well, you stay here and uh, hold off the enemy while we escape. And, of course, what happened was that all of his his fellows... Uh, hit the road and were mowed down by a machine gun while he survived, just because he had never learned to ride a bicycle. He does seem to be uh, fortunate, yes. He writes, At home I kept bumping into things and into the lack of things. A bathroom and a toilet, for instance, all we had at the battery was a common shower room and beyond that a common latrine. There we would squat next to one another, uh, essing into a pit, and that didn't bother me at all. But at home, the toilet on the landing, shared by four flats, grew more and more distasteful to me. It was always filthy from the neighbor's children or occupied when you needed it. It stank, and its walls were smeared with fingerprints. The two-room hole, the family trap, everything there conspired to constrain the weekend visitor. Not even a mother's hand could smooth away the son's distress. True, he was no longer expected to sleep in his parents' bedroom like his sister. But even on the couch made up for him in the living room, he remained a witness to the married life that continued unbroken from Saturday to Sunday. That is, I could hear or thought I could hear, sounds I had heard, muffled as they were from childhood on, sounds that had lodged in my mind in the form of a monstrous ritual, the anticipatory whispers, the lip-smacking, the creaking bedsprings, 
the sighing horsehair mattress, the moaning, the groaning, the entire oral repertory of lovemaking, so potent, especially in the dark. I had a clear picture of all the variations on marital coupling, and in my cinematic version of the act, the mother was always the victim. She yielded. She gave the go-ahead. She held out to the point of exhaustion. Now the hatred of a mother's boy for his father, the subliminal battleground that determined the course of Greek tragedies, and has been so eloquently updated by Dr. Freud and his disciples, was thus, if not the primary cause, then at least one of the factors in my push to leave home. <laughs> I racked my brain. Oh, I thought of flight routes. They all ran in one direction, the front, or one of the many fronts as quickly as possible. I tried to pick a quarrel with my father. It wasn't easy. It would have taken massive recriminations and peace-loving family man that he was. He was quick to give in. Anything to maintain harmony. The progenitor had a constant wish for the offspring on his lips. I want your life to be better. You will have a better life than ours. Try as I might to turn him into a bugbear. He was not made for the role. Oh, dear, I have a footnote here. I see why Gunter Grass is such a sweet man. He had a loving father. Well, isn't that a trip? I tell you, nothing changes till the fathers love the sons. Obviously, it wasn't enough to keep this kid out of the Waffen SS. However, once he went into battle, he learned his lesson quick and never did it again. Anyway, Gunter Grass goes on to write, Yet the suddenly unbearable two-room flat and four-family toilet on the half-landing could not have been the sole cause of my urge to enlist. My schoolmates had grown up in five-room flats with their own bathrooms, supplied with rolls of toilet paper instead of the newsprint we tore into squares. Uh, he describes elsewhere his father's great care in cutting up these newspaper squares to leave for toilet paper. Anyway, he says that some of his friends even lived in fancy private houses and had rooms of their own, yet they too yearned to get away, to go to the front. <laughs> Another footnote here, it says, Romanticism kills. Don't interrupt Gunter Grass, Jennifer. Like me, my friends wanted to face danger without fear, to sink ship after ship, knock out tank after tank, or fly through the skies in the latest model Messerschmitts, picking off enemy bombers. After Stalingrad, however, the situation at the front went downhill. Ah, uh, and he goes on to describe his, uh, oh, his uncles and the people that kept the thumbtacks with the uh, maps and all of this stuff and the worry uh, about the end of the war. He said, it wasn't the newspapers that fed my hero worship, 
but the news reels. I was a pushover for the prettified black and white truth they served up. Not one news reel failed to show the submarines returning home victorious. Ah, <laughs> das boot, yes. Since I went home on leave, would lie awake for hours on the living room couch after seeing them on the screen. I had plenty of opportunity to picture myself as a ship's mate during a stormy tower watch. He goes on to describe the glorious, uh, glorious fantasies of being a, <laughs> a submarine sailor. Yes, I think uh, I remember the first time I saw the German film. By Wolfgang Petersen, the the movie Das Boot. I it was all I could do to sit through it. I don't know why I made myself suffer so, but uh, horrific pain. I believe they said there was something like forty thousand men who went down in those submarines. Anyway, this essay is exciting because it gives me the kind of portrait of a war and of a young man in war that is exactly like the portraits uh, <laughs> on our side. Yes, except that it's rather well written. Uh, <laughs> oh, dear, poor kid. He goes on uh, to talk about all the dramatic details that he picked up uh, from the movies and how he expected the war to be like a movie. I think of the the young men in Iraq today who use the music. They can put the music now uh, in their tanks. And they listen to that, um, is that, oh, the flight of the Valkyries, the one that's in Apocalypse Now. Apparently, the soldiers really like to go to war to music. Uh, anyway, he fails to get a uh, a job, or an, he applies uh, as a submarine volunteer, but uh, <laughs> he he finally gets a job in the uh, uh, yes the labor the labor force he he has a job uh, yes in the labor service providing support for the war in the civilian areas. Uh, there's a very funny scene here in which some older men uh, laugh at him, saying, Patience, young man, patience. We'll come and get you soon enough. Uh, he said the two men in uniform were laughing sardonically, thinking of what the boys still in shorts had in store. The sergeant's left sleeve was empty. Later he goes on to describe an older soldier who helps him on the Russian front, uh, whose legs are blown off, but who uh, is responsible for his surviving the war at all, certainly responsible for her, his surviving the Russians. And he goes on here, yes, time passes. Uh, he says, Mother's take on the general situation boiled down to the following. I have my doubts. Though I once heard her say, too bad Hess is gone. I liked him better than our Führer. She was also known to come out with, I can't understand why they've got it in for the Jews. 
We used to have a haberdashery sales rep by the name of Zuckerman, as nice as could be, and always gave a discount. There you have it, folks, the good Germans, talking exactly the way we do today. Aha, yes, Cheney's worse than Bush. <laughs> this is the, um, uh, the excerpt from Gunter Grass's war experiences in the New Yorker. You can find it in the June 4th issue of the New Yorker. <laughs> the great Gunter Grass, how I spent the war uh, as a recruit in the Waffen SS. He wrote the tin drum, you remember Gunter. <laughs> Check it out. This has been Jennifer Stone. Be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. If you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Drop the shadow. Inviting you to join me on Tuesday evenings at 8 p.m. for Musical Colors, an exploration of the textures of jazz and world music. Join me, Raquel, for Musical Colors on Tuesdays at 8 p.m. here on KPFA, listener-sponsored radio, 94.1 FM.